0: You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom, Christian, in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing blessed be the name of the lord Hello brothers and sisters and welcome to a, another episode of Return of the Historic Faith with your host the remnant warrior pastor Jeremy Anderson and Tonight, unfortunately, Brother Matthew Marcel will not be able to be with us, but he will be back for the next episode that will be going up probably Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon, and that episode is going to be on voting and politics, so it's definitely going to be one that you don't want to miss. However, tonight... are going to be talking about a truly, truly important subject, and that is the Word of God. Tonight's episode is entitled, The Apostles' Bible. We're going to be talking about the Greek Septuagint. The Septuagint was... Translation of the, the Hebrew scriptures, and we are going to be looking at a detailed history of the Septuagint, beginning with its creation and continuing down through history through the time of Christ and the apostles. All the way through the first 300 years of Christianity up until around the year 384. And with that, we are going to go ahead and jump into tonight's subject. I want to ask you something. Has has this ever happened to you? Or perhaps you've been in a Bible study or Sunday school class and this subject has come up. This question was asked. You're reading the New Testament and the New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament go to the Old Testament to look up the passage, but it reads differently from what you just read in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 21 verse 15 and 16, Jesus quotes scripture to the chief priests and scribes at the temple in Jerusalem. We read, but when the chief priest And scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. That's Matthew 21. Verses fifteen and sixteen, and that was from the New King James. Well, all right, your your Bible probably has a footnote showing that that Jesus is quoting from Psalms chapter eight, verse two. So you look up that passage in your Old Testament and you read it, and it reads, "Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have." ordained strength. Wait a minute. Now, that is not what Jesus quoted to the chief priests and the scribes. The whole point of the quotation is that the babes and nursing infants would perfect praise. The way that verse reads in our Old Testament's completely misses the point. So why did Jesus quote that passage the way he did? Did he misquote the scripture? And why didn't the chief priests and scribes challenge him on this? You would think that they would have said, the scriptures say no such thing, or you're misquoting the Psalms. Well, the reason chief priests and scribes didn't challenge Jesus on this was because he was not misquoting the scripture at all. He was just quoting from a different Old Testament text than the one we have in our Bibles today. Jesus was quoting from the Septuagint. Psalms chapter 8 verse 2 in the Septuagint reads this way, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have perfected praise. That's just the way that Jesus quoted. So what we're going to be looking at over the course of tonight is the answer to questions that should be on our minds. Number one, what is the Septuagint? Number two, where did it come from? Number three, why did Jesus quote from it rather than the Old Testament text that we have? Four, if our Old Testament translations aren't taken from the Septuagint, then what are they taken from? The fifth question is, what about the Apostles, did they quote from the Septuagint or from The Old Testament that we have in our Bibles. Number six. What Old Testament did the early Christian Jews. During the first centuries of Christianity. And finally. The seventh question. How did we come to have a different Old Testament. From what Jesus was quoting from. Now. I want to tell you first how I discovered the Septuagint. I stumbled upon the Septuagint. Uh, some might say by accident. Um, others might say um, it was providence from God. I. It was while I was researching the early Christians and. What they believed on various subjects. And I was listening to Brother David Bersow from Scroll Publishing. And he did an entire uh, audio series on what the early Christians believed. And it was actually through listening to those audio teachings that I discovered what Kingdom Christianity was about and, you know, what the historic fate of the Apostles and Anti-Nicene Church actually was. And also... How I discovered the Septuagint. Scroll Publishing and Sattler College teamed up and created a website of online Christian courses called the HistoricFaith.com, and one of the courses on the historic faith is on the the history of the Bible and David Berceau is who teaches this course and one of the the lessons in the history of the Bible is on the Septuagint. And before I found that teaching and learned all about the Septuagint, it was uh, not on my radar at all whatsoever. Um, you know, the neither the Old Testament texts, families, nor the, the Septuagint were either one Something that I ever really thought about. And whenever I did think about Bible translations, I had always been someone who was a King James only believer. I believed that the King James Bible was the unchanged, infallible Word of God, and it was the the Bible that God used to preserve His Word down through history, and that it was a word-for-word translation of the Hebrew and Greek Old Testament and New Testaments, and I was quite literally a KJV only. Christian. Now, it was a pretty big shock to me when I learned that the early Christians believed a lot differently than I did and that I had been raised and taught concerning various theological doctrines such as eternal security and uh, salvation and life after death and quite a few other very important aspects of the Christian faith that are all covered in the series that David Bersaud did on what the early Christians believed. Another thing that I was very, very shocked to learn was what the pre-Nicene Christians and their writings actually said and what they believed about the Septuagint. And more than that, it was a huge shock when I discovered that the Septuagint was actually the Old Testament of the early church. Not only that, but that the unbelieving Jews were using a different Old Testament text than the Christians were. Now, each side accused the other of using a corrupt text. Before reading the early Christian writings I had heard of the Greek Septuagint before. I knew it was the first translation that was made out of the Hebrew Old Testament but that's about all I knew about it. So I decided that once I was finished with all of the teachings from David Bersaud on the early church and what they believed about the various things in that series that I was going to start doing some serious digging to learn as much as I could about the Septuagint. Now, one of the most amazing things that I found about the Septuagint was the way that God used it to prepare a Bible for the Gentiles. God foreknew and foreordained the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. He knew that the gospel would be taken to all nations, beginning with the countries surrounding the Mediterranean, And it appears that in preparation for this, God used the conquest of Alexander the Great to provide a setting where there would be a common language of Greek that most people throughout the Mediterranean world and even beyond could speak. God also prospered the Roman Empire, creating a situation where throughout the Mediterranean world, There was peace, stability, good roads, and safe travel on both land and sea. To further prepare for the spread of the gospel, God even providentially scattered the Jews throughout the Mediterranean world, such that almost all major cities had a synagogue with access to the sacred writings. Yet, in all of this, could I possibly believe that God did not furnish the Mediterranean world with a a Bible that could be understood by most people? Was I to believe that he kept his word locked up in Hebrew, a language that virtually no one outside of Judaism could read? fact, at the time of Christ, the vast majority of the Jews could not understand Hebrew. Interestingly, during the first century, even after Rome had conquered the entire Mediterranean world, the most commonly spoken language throughout the Roman Empire was still Greek, not Latin. So if God was going to make his word available, in a particular language, then Greek was the obvious choice. God worked through a Gentile ruler to provide a Bible for the Gentile world. As we all know, God has often used Gentile rulers to accomplish His will. Before, like Cyrus and Darius, he used Gentile rulers to do his will. So we should not be surprised to find that God would work through a human ruler to provide a Bible for the Gentile world and the multitude of Greek-speaking Jews. During the 3rd century B.C., God moved the Greek ruler of Egypt, who was named Ptolemy II, to commission the Jewish sacred writings to be translated into Greek. Ptolemy was a descendant of one of Alexander the Great's generals, and the reason that he wanted to do this was that he was assembling the largest library ever in existence. And he wanted to include in his library the wisdom of all the various peoples with whom the Greeks were in contact. The Greeks in Egypt had been in contact with the Jewish people in Palestine for quite some time. and In addition, there was a large colony of Jews who were living in Alexandria at that very time. He asked a Jewish high priest in Jerusalem send him men who could translate Hebrew into Greek and to send with them the scrolls of the Jewish sacred writings. The high priest sent him 72 Jewish translators. Now, these events are all described in a letter written by a man named Aristius. According to his account, Ptolemy had the translators work on the island of Pharos situated in the harbor of Alexandria so they would have a quiet place to work he says that Ptolemy divided them into groups to translate independently of each other so there would be no collusion to hide any of the Jewish mysteries and laws from the Gentile world according to Aristius when they all finished translating the translators were the the translations i mean were all compared and they all read exactly the same for that reason their translation was viewed by the jews and later by the christians as divinely inspired i can well understand why an unbeliever would doubt this narrative to be true, since it points to the providential hand of God in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. However, there is nothing in the narrative that should be a problem for us Christians. Among the miracles that God performed, this is certainly not one of the more spectacular, Actually, the narrative about the translation of the Septuagint has just as much historical documentation as most other ancient non-biblical events. The account in the letter of Aristius was believed by Philo, Josephus, as well as the early Christians. Aristius states that Ptolemy had translators work on the island of Pharaoh so they would have a quiet place to work. Philo was a highly respected Jew who lived in Alexandria at the time of Christ. His account of the translation of the Septuagint is very close to the narrative provided in the letter of Aristius. However, he does furnish some important historical information from his own time. In a writing from Philo, he states, On which account, even to this very day, there is every year a solemn assembly held and a festival celebrated on the island of Pharos, to which not only the Jews, but a great number of persons of other nations sail across reverencing the place in which the first light of interpretation shone forth, and thanking God for that ancient piece of beneficence which was always young and fresh. And after the prayers and the giving of thanks, some of them pitched their tents on the shore, and some of them lay down without any tents in the open air on the sand of the shore. So if both Jews and Gentiles were visiting the island of Pharos and celebrating the anniversary of the translation of the Septuagint every year, the account of Aristius hardly sounds like a legend. In fact, Justin Martyr, when discoursing with the Greeks around the year A.D. 150, says this, he says, you men of Greece, this is no fable, nor have I narrated something fictitious. Rather, I myself have been in Alexandria, and have seen the remains of the little cottages at Pharaoh's, which are still preserved. And I have heard these things from the inhabitants of Alexandria, who had received them as part of their country's tradition. I have told you things that you can also learn from others, and especially from those wise and esteemed men who have written of these things, Philo and Josephus, End quote. So Justin Martyr offers proof that the account is no legend or fable. He said he had actually been in Alexandria and seen the remains of the cottages on the island of Pharos where Jewish translators worked on the Septuagint. Now, you may be wondering why exactly the Septuagint was so remarkable. The translation these Jewish scholars produced came to be known as the translation of the 70 being a type of shorthand for 72. The word 70 in Latin is septuaginta, and that's why their translation is known today as the Septuagint. When the translation was finished, it was placed in the Library of Alexandria, where it stood for centuries translation of the Septuagint was a momentous event in several different ways. It was the first translation ever made of any of the sacred scriptures. It was also the first substantive work to be written in Kone Greek, the same Greek that the New Testament would later be written. All of the pagan or secular Greek writings up until then were written in classical Greek. Copies of the Septuagint were soon made and it quickly became the Bible of the Greek-speaking Jewish world. The Jews viewed it not just as a good translation, but as an inspired translation. Now, the scriptures finally available and accessible to the Gentile world. In the centuries that followed the translation of the Septuagint, many Gentiles began attending Jewish synagogues where they could hear the scriptures read and discussed in their own language. Finally, it laid the groundwork for the gospel. Eventually, reach the Gentile world. Now, before we go any further with the history of the Septuagint, we need to ask some questions and understand a few things about text families. First, How were the scriptures transmitted from the time of Moses and David and the prophets until the 3rd century B.C. when the Septuagint was translated? Also, who copied them from one generation to another? We know copies of the scriptures, and perhaps some of the original manuscripts, were kept at the temple in Jerusalem, But what happened to the scriptures when the Babylonians destroyed both the temple and Jerusalem itself? Who took the scriptures to Babylon and preserved them? Who brought the scriptures back to Jerusalem when a remnant of the Israelites returned from Babylon? The answer to all of these questions is, we simply don't know. We know virtually nothing about the transmission of the Old Testament text from the days of Moses down to the time of the translation of the Septuagint. All we know is that the Septuagint scriptures were translated from the Hebrew scriptures. And we know that the Hebrew scriptures were transmitted from generation to generation and were still in existence in the third century BC. We also know that when men copied the scriptures by hand, they didn't copy them perfectly. With regard to both the Old and New Testament, there are variations between all of the hand-copied manuscripts. As variations developed, eventually there ended up being three different text families of the Old Testament. First, the one the Septuagint was translated from. Second is the Proto-Masoretic text family which was the family the unbelieving Jews eventually embraced after the time of the apostles. And third is the family of the Samaritan Pentateuch was translated from. Now in his providence, God saw to it that the differences in these three text families were minor. All of them have the same people, the same events, and the same doctrines. Most Old Testament verses read exactly the same, regardless of which text family or which manuscript that you're reading from. Now, another question that I hear is, why God didn't preserve the original autographs? Why didn't God preserve the original manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures? Now, hearing this may be startling to you or even faith shattering, but please, please don't let it be. I realize that It's not what most of us expected to discover when looking into the history of the Word of God. And it certainly isn't what we wanted to discover about the way the Bible was handed down from the time of Moses down through the Septuagint in the 3rd century BC. When I first came across this, I have to admit that I had to wrestle with it for quite a while myself. However, God's wisdom is far greater than ours, and I have no doubt that he could have preserved his word without any changes whatsoever if he so desired. However, then his word would turn on the precise lettering of that original text. And people would start worshipping the text itself instead of the message. They would also focus more on the text of the word than on the God of the word. Not only that, but... As soon as a copyist made an error, it would no longer be the word of God. More importantly, as soon as someone translated it into another language, then it would no longer be God's word. That's because you can never precisely convey every meaning and verb tense from one language to another. Our language actually affects how we think about things. I first became aware of this years ago when reading instructions written for a product that was made in China back when China was first getting into the world marketplace. Some translator convinced his or her boss that they knew English and I don't doubt that they knew thousands of English words, but it was obvious that the thought patterns of this Chinese translator were very different than how we think about things. In virtually every language, many, if not most words, have more than one meaning. Sometimes the meaning can be very, very different. Most of the time, the correct meaning is from the context however many times there is an ambiguity that isn't so clear yet it can be hard to convey that ambiguity when translating that word into another language for example the hebrew word ruach means both spirit and wind however there isn't a common english word for ruach that can mean both spirit and wind. So when a translator translates ruach into English, he has to make a decision whether to translate the Hebrew as wind or as spirit. His fallible interpretation of the passage could mean that he introduces an error into God's infallible word. Not only that, in some passages it would not have been clear even to an ancient Israelite whether the writer is talking about the wind or the spirit. But we as English readers lose that sense of ambiguity because the Bible translator has decided upon one of those two meanings. Of course, the translator can put a marginal note informing the reader that the word he has just translated as spirit could also mean wind, but it still isn't the same. Most readers don't stop and examine every marginal note when they're reading scripture. I recently recorded two messages that address the issue of capitalization. There was no way to capitalize a letter in either ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek. Yet in the 21st century English, it normally makes a huge difference in the meaning of a word. All throughout both the Old and New Testaments, the word spirit could mean either holy spirit or man's spirit. It can also mean the essence or sense of something, such as the spirit of the law. Except through marginal notes, there's no way to address that ambiguity in the English language. Once the translator decides to go with either a capital S or a lowercase s, he has changed an ambiguous expression in Hebrew or Greek into an unambiguous expression in English. In short, Unless God was going to lock up his word in ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, he had to guide the transmission of his word in such a way that it could be translated into other languages and still be his word. So I think he purposefully allowed scribal errors and variations to come into the thousands of hand-copied manuscripts of his word to make it clear to us that his word does not turn on every word and syllable of the text. If it did, we would have to leave his word untranslated from ancient Hebrew and Greek perfect example of what i'm saying to you can be found in the sacred name doctrine in the hebrew roots movement and the holy hebrew movement of the hebrew roots movement that says that hebrew the hebrew language is the only holy language and that it was the original language that Adam and Eve spoke in the garden. If that were the case, then it would go hand-in-hand with the way that the translations of the Word of God would have to stay untranslated in ancient Hebrew and Greek. What I mean by that is there are going to be people who hear this message that are no doubt a part of these movements inside the Hebrew Roots movement. These two groups of people who a lot of times are one group of people that believe that God doesn't hear your prayers unless you pray in a specific name, unless you use a specific pronunciation of the Hebrew name of God. And also that if you pray. Study the scripture in the Hebrew language, then you can receive more wisdom—a type of of secret wisdom, if you will. You have uh, more knowledge than the average person, and this is just. Fallacy. And I say that so that everyone understands that if this were the case, then we would not have the Bible at all. Because even in the original language, as I have pointed out, that none of the original manuscripts that were handwritten were the same no two manuscripts were ever the same therefore the whole idea of the Hebrew being a holier language than any other language of man and also, that God only hears our prayers when we pronounce His name using a specific uh, pronunciation of His name in Hebrew. Both of these things are complete fallacy. This is clearly shown through the way that God allowed His Word to still be preserved and kept throughout history, even though no two handwritten documents are the same now God's word was not untranslated and it wasn't left in the ancient Hebrew and Greek and I am so thankful for that as I'm sure you are as well But at the same time, God had providentially worked things so that none of the variances in the thousands of manuscripts would affect the overall message of the Bible. God's word is his message. And his message has been preserved unchanged. Interestingly, there are more than 40,000 denominations, churches, and sects today, all of whom profess to be Orthodox Christians. Yet they teach many different and contradictory things. Ironically, these differences are not because they use different Bible texts. Back when virtually every English Christian used the King James Bible, there were still thousands of different churches and sects. There are thousands of people around today who hold similar views to mine on many key kingdom teachings. Yet, they would use the Masoretic text exclusively. On the other hand, there are tens of thousands of people who embrace the Septuagint, but they don't hold to the same kingdom teachings. In fact, I do not know of a single Christian lifestyle doctrine that turns on or is even affected by whether we use the Septuagint or the Masoretic. Let alone whether we use this version of the Septuagint versus another version, or this edition of the Hebrew Masoretic versus another edition. I know of only one Christian theological doctrine that is affected by whether we use the Septuagint or the Masoretic, and that's the doctrine of atonement. The only reason why it's affected is because Isaiah 53 reads slightly differently in the Septuagint than in the Masoretic. The two are very similar but there is just enough difference to flavor the tone of things. I use the word affected because different theories of the atonement don't turn on whether one uses the Septuagint or the Masoretic text, but it does affect it. Other than that, it isn't going to make any changes in your Christian life or beliefs whether you use the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. You see, friends, God has indeed preserved His Holy Word. Now, there may be some of you thinking, but Pastor Jeremy, didn't Jesus say that not one jot nor tittle of the law would pass away before it was fulfilled? Yes, He certainly did. But I hope, that, like me, you believe that the law was fulfilled with the death of Christ. Nevertheless, we're going to talk about this in more detail in another message in this series on the history of the Word of God. And we'll see that Jesus is not talking about the text of the law, but instead, he's talking about the commandments of the law. Now, we're going to look and see which of the Old Testament text families is actually the best. The reason why I use the word best is that. It wasn't a a contest between the one pure, unadulterated Word of God versus two families of Bible texts that were worthless. Most Jews in the 3rd century BC had no choice. Few, if any, Jews would have owned copies of Old Testament scrolls. They went to the synagogue to hear it read every Sabbath most places, they probably didn't have a choice of the synagogue they went to. There was only one in their geographic location. And whichever text family they happened to have at that synagogue, that's what you heard read. However, the basic message was the same regardless of which text was being used. However, God did have a choice. Personally, I find it impossible to believe that the Gentile world ended up with a Bible they could read only through happenstance. A pagan ruler wanted to have the best public library possible in his city, and through this accident, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, it just happened to be there for the Christians to start using to spread the gospel? (laughs) I'm sorry, but I simply just can't believe that. The Bible was available to the Gentile world and the Greek-speaking Jewish world because God planned it that way. So God had decided which text family that he was going to go with. And he chose to go with the family that the Septuagint was taken from. Now, for me, that seals it. What other evidence could you possibly need? God already made the choice for us. However, for the sake of argument, let's suppose that God was not behind the translation of the Septuagint, that it was simply the product of Ptolemy's idea coupled with the cooperation of the Jewish leaders. In that case, then the Jewish high priest and other leaders made the choice. Which one would they have chosen? wouldn't it have been the text that they considered to be the best? I mean, after all, if they didn't want to cooperate, they could have made excuses that it just wasn't doable. At a minimum, if they weren't wanting to cooperate, they could have sent only two or three translators. Ptolemy didn't request a team of 72 translators. That was the idea of the Jewish leaders. So they were obviously wanting to cooperate with Ptolemy. So they would have chosen the text they thought was the best text. Either that or there was only one text type being used in the temple at that time. So that's what they sent with the team of translators. Now, the reason why the the Jewish leaders would have favored this text if if they had nothing else to go on, the Jewish leaders would have likely favored the text they did because it contains fewer difficult passages than the proto-Masoretic text. Now, I'll give you some examples, but before I do, I want to explain that for the sake of simplification, I will be referring to the other text family simply as the Masoretic text. Actually, the Masoretic text is a product of the Jewish scribes in the Middle Ages. but the text family that existed before then is properly designated as the proto-masoretic text. Beyond a doubt one of the most difficult passages in the Masoretic text is the account of Saul and David in 1 Samuel 16 verses 18 through 22 we read that then one of the servants answered and said look I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing a mighty man of valor a man of war prudent in speech and a handsome person and the Lord is with him Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Yet in the the very next chapter, when David volunteers to go and fight Goliath, Saul doesn't even know who David is. Now, that is a problem. Let's look at 1 Samuel 17 verses 55 through 58. It says, When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned, From the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took with him... Sorry, I seem to have lost my place for a second. It says... Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, did Saul have brain surgery between chapter 16 and 17 of 1 Samuel? I mean, is it actually believable that Saul would not even know who David is? David personally played the heart for Saul. He was his special armor bearer. In chapter 17, Saul doesn't even address him as David. Rather, he says, whose son are you, young man? And David doesn't reply, O king, surely you know me. I am David, the one who has played the harp for you. You know who my father is and where I come from. No, David answers like it's a perfectly natural question. I realize that commentators come up with inventive ways to try and make that passage make sense, but there is just no reasonable way to do it that episode appeared in the Apocrypha, everyone would point to it as proof that the Apocrypha had errors and is not inspired, because there is no way to make sense of this passage. Now, what about the Septuagint? What does the Septuagint read in this passage? Now, there is absolutely no problem there, because that entire difficult passage isn't found in the Septuagint at all. It is only found in the Masoretic text. Another example of a textual difficulty in the Masoretic text is in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23, where we read, Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. However, later in 2 Samuel we read, So the king took Armoni and Meth the two sons of Rispa and the five sons of Mikal. The daughter of Saul Second Samuel twenty one verse eight. Now the Septuagint reads So the king took Armoni and Methpibosheth, the two sons of Rispa, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul. Second Samuel twenty one verse eight in the Septuagint has no contradiction at all. This contradiction simply does not appear in the Septuagint. Now I'll give you one more example and this one is from 2 Chronicles. In chapters 21 and 22 we read in the Masoretic text that Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. Resigned, excuse me, he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place For the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. We have a serious problem here. If Jehoram died when he was 40 years old, then his youngest son could not possibly have been 42 at the time. (laughs) Once again, we will see that this difficulty does not exist in the Septuagint at all. It reads like this. Azaziah began to reign when he was 20 years old. 2 Chronicles twenty two two in the Septuagint. Now, another problem that appears in the Masoretic text is not apparent to most of the English readers, and it concerns Psalms chapter 145, which is an alphabetic acrostic poem. Now in this type of poem, the initial letter of each verse follows the Hebrew alphabet in sequence. Psalms 119 is an example of such a poem. However, in the Masoretic, for Psalms 145, there is no verse beginning with the letter num, which is equivalent to the English letter n. Now there should be such a verse between verses 13 and 14. It is hard to believe that the psalmist would go through the entire Hebrew alphabet, yet leave out one of the letters. Thankfully, the missing verse is there in the Septuagint. Interestingly, one of the Hebrew manuscripts of the psalms found among the Dead Sea Scrolls also contains this missing verse, and it reads, The same as that found in the Septuagint. So at one time we know that it was there in the Hebrew. So just for the sake of argument, if the decision of which text to use was solely that of the Jewish priests and leaders, and not God's decision. Would they have likely chosen the text they did because it didn't contain as many difficult passages? That is just something to think about. Again, we're only discussing which of these two text families was the better of the two. In saying I believe the Septuagint was made from the better of the two... I'm not saying the Masoretic Text is not the Word of God. Now that might sound strange to you at first, but think about it like this. Throughout the centuries, there have been a number of translations made of the Bible into English. For the moment, I'm not even talking about the modern translations of the 20 and 21st centuries. First there was the Wycliffe Bible, centuries later there was the Tyndale translation. Some of the others that followed it were the Coverdale Bible, the Great Bible, and the Geneva Bible. Now all of these Bibles contain the same basic message. However, there are differences in wording that affect the meaning of specific verses. Now, do we believe that Wycliffe and the Lollards after him were reading God's Word? I think most of us would say yes. But what about when Reformation ideas reached England and people started using Tyndale's translation? Were these new Protestants not using God's Word? I think we would all say that they were using God's Word. Yet there are numerous differences between the Wyclef Bible and the Tyndale Bible. Later, other reformers in England used the Coverdale Bible. Eventually, the Great Bible was used by a large percentage of the English population, but the Puritans used their own Geneva Bible. Were some of these people using God's Word and others not using God's Word? What about when the King James Bible came along in 1611? If these other translations were God's Word, could the King James also claim to be God's Word? Now, you may or may not know that the Puritans and Pilgrims rejected the King James Bible And they and their descendants stuck with the Geneva Bible until sometime in the 1700s. Can you see my point now? Even if there was a perfect manuscript type for the entire Bible, which there is not, there would still be differences every time someone translated it into a new language. Yet they all would be versions of God's Word. Even for those generations of Christians who have used the King James Bible, their Bible has changed over time. People who use the King James today are normally using the revised edition of it that was put out by Oxford University in 1769. I discussed in another message that I did several months back called Capital Error and the Difference Between the Spirit and Soul. There are some significant substantive changes between the original 1611 version of the KJV and the 1769 version used today. So, are both versions God's Word, or did no one have God's Word until 1769? None of this even takes into account the numerous modern versions of today or the various versions of the Bible in other languages. As I've said before, in his wisdom, God providentially provided that his word would not turn on this specific term or that specific term. His word is the basic message contained in all of these versions throughout the centuries. So back in the 3rd century BC, those Jews who had the Septuagint, or the Hebrew text from which it was taken were not in sole possession of God's Word. The other Jews who were using scrolls within the family of the Masoretic text still had God's Word as well. All of our translations and versions are man's imperfect renderings of God's perfect infallible word regardless to any errors that may occur in specific or certain imperfect renderings that we as human beings make of the Word of God does not change God's Word from being perfect one bit. God's Word is the same no matter what translations are made using the Word of God. Just because a certain translation may have errors in it, or may have changes in it, that doesn't change the Word of God in any way, shape, or form. Now, we're going to talk about something that is called cross-pollination that takes place between the two texts and as I have mentioned the issue here wasn't between two Old Testament manuscripts because the Septuagint and the uh, Masoretic were not manuscripts of the Old Testament but they were actually two families of Old Testament text. And by that I mean that there were variations between the different Hebrew manuscripts within the Septuagintal family, and there were variations between the Hebrew manuscripts within the Masoretic text family. Not only that, but in those centuries, There were no restrictions on who could make a handwritten copy of God's Word. So, people started making copies of the Septuagint to be used in Greek-speaking synagogues around the world. Hebrew-speaking Jews continued to make copies of both types of Hebrew text. Sometimes the Hebrew copyists seem to have intermingled texts from both families. By Jesus' day, there wasn't just one version of the Old Testament in Hebrew, nor was there just one version of the Septuagint. What I'm saying isn't based on speculation here. This is the exact situation that we find in the Qumran library. That's the collection of scrolls that, used by the Jewish sect, uh, who were probably the Essenes that collected this library. Being situated in Judea, just a few miles from Jerusalem, it's not surprising that most of the Old Testament manuscripts in their language would fall into the Masoretic text family. However, they also had Hebrew manuscripts that fall into the Septuagintal family. Not only that, but some of the scrolls that were found there partially follow the Masoretic tradition and partially follow the Septuagint with the same manuscript. So, well read Jews who lived in Palestine in Jesus' day would likely have been familiar with both text types, as well as hybrids that contained some of both text families. There was widespread use of Greek by the Jews living in Palestine during the Middle Ages and Reformation period Bible commentators and church leaders thought that most Jews in Palestine in Jesus' day spoke Hebrew however when biblical archaeology became a science in the 1800s scholars found strong evidence that in Jesus' day far more Jews spoke Aramaic than they did Hebrew. Scholars eventually concluded that the New Testament expression Hebradii Dialecto refers to Aramaic and not to Hebrew. It literally means the dialect of the Hebrew and the dialect most Hebrew people spoke was Aramaic. That is, that Aramaic was the most common language among those Palestinian Jews who didn't speak Greek. However, current archaeology has also demonstrated the widespread use of Greek by the ancient Jews. Some 1600 Jewish epitaphs from the Mediterranean world have been uncovered, dating from 300 BC to 500 AD. About 70% of these Jewish epitaphs are in Greek. Only 18% of them are in Aramaic or Hebrew combined. Even in Palestine, about two-thirds of the epitaphs are in Greek. Now, there's strong evidence that the greater part of the Jewish population in ancient Palestine spoke Greek as their daily language. This fact is corroborated by other archaeological findings. For example, a number of ancient synagogues have been unearthed in Palestine during the past century of these synagogues, 67 have inscriptions in Greek, 54 have inscriptions in Aramaic, and only 14 have Hebrew inscriptions. Yet this evidence was there all the time in our New Testaments. Peter and John, unlearned and ignorant men from Galilee, wrote, their New Testament letters in Greek, not in Aramaic or Hebrew. Likewise, James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, wrote their New Testament letters in Greek, despite the fact that James' ministry was limited almost exclusively to Jews. And as far as we know, he never left Jerusalem. what would we expect to find in Jesus' ministry? Given this evidence, this is what we would expect to find about Jesus' ministry. First, he would have encountered many Jews who spoke Greek and many who spoke Aramaic. He would have also encountered numerous Greek-speaking Gentiles. effectively preach to all those people he would have needed to be bilingual Two, as he went in and out of the synagogues up and down Palestine he would have been in some that were Greek speaking and some that were Aramaic speaking he might even have been in ones that were Hebrew-speaking. The third thing we would expect to find is, in the course of this, he would have encountered various versions of the Old Testament. He would have certainly heard the scriptures read from the Septuagint, particularly in Galilee may have heard the scriptures read in Hebrew from texts similar to the Septuagint, except in Hebrew. He almost certainly would have heard the scriptures read in Hebrew from texts of the Masoretic family. Finally, he almost certainly would have encountered in many synagogues the situation where the scriptures were read in Hebrew from either text family and then translated orally and discussed in Aramaic. So among the mixture of his hearers, they would have heard the Old Testament read and quoted in a variety of wordings. So what do the facts show? Of course, the big question is do Jesus' quotations from the Old Testament support this scenario? To find out, I've gone through the four Gospels and examined each of Jesus' quotations from Scripture, comparing his quotations to both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. This task was made considerably easier by the fact that a scholar named Dr. Joel Kamaski has published on the internet a 75-page, three-columned manuscript that lists all of the direct quotes in the New Testament from the Old. In the first column, he has the New Testament quote as rendered in the King James Version. The middle column has the Septuagint rendering of that Old Testament passage, using Britain's translation of the Septuagint third column has the Masoretic text rendering of that Old Testament passage using the King James Old Testament. The list begins with Matthew and goes to the end of the New Testament. Anyway, I went through the passages where Jesus directly quotes from the Old Testament saying, it is written, or where he uses similar language. And I found 31 such passages in the four Gospels, not counting duplicate quotes found in more than one of the Synoptic Gospels. In 26 of the 31 quotations, there is no difference in meaning between the Septuagint and the Masoretic Text. Now, this corroborates what I said earlier, that the overall teaching is the same regardless to whether you're using the Masoretic Text or the Septuagint. In most of those 26 quotes, if you examine the actual words, you realize that Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint because of the slight difference in wording between the Septuagint and Masoretic Text. But what about the five instances where there is a difference in Four of the five, Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint. In two of these, he is responding to the Jewish religious leaders, and the point he is making depends upon the language of the Septuagint. One of the two was the example I gave at the beginning of this message from Matthew 21, 16. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected. Praise. The other one is Matthew chapter fifteen, verses eight and nine. The scribes and Pharisees had complained that Jesus' apostles were not following their traditions. Jesus rebukes them, saying, You have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. He then quotes from Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen ends with the words in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This is how it reads in the Septuagint. However, in the Masoretic text it says instead their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now that is something totally different. Included in this group of four is the long quotation from Isaiah that Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth. His reading includes the words, And recovery of sight to the blind, which do not appear in the Masoretic text, but do appear in the Septuagint. We all know that Jesus restored sight to the physically blind a number of times, so this is a significant messianic prophecy. Interestingly, the text Jesus read in the synagogue also included the phrase, to set at liberty those who are bruised. That phrase doesn't appear in either the Septuagint or the Masoretic Text. However in one of these five cases where there is a difference in meaning between the Septuagint and the Masoretic Text, Jesus follows the Masoretic Text. Now, This is in Matthew 26.31 where Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13.7. Smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And the Septuagint, that passage in Zechariah reads: "Smite the shepherd's plural and remove the sheep. So, what are we to conclude? To me, it fits exactly the picture that I have been painting. If indeed the Septuagint was brought about through the hand of God, then we would expect that Jesus would have had no hesitancy to quote from it. And obviously he didn't. He actually favors it over the Masoretic text. That he doesn't object to quoting from the Masoretic Text when its wording was more applicable. He treats it as the Word of God as well. His use of both texts fits what we see elsewhere. As I said, both Hebrew text types have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In his writings, Josephus quotes about equally from the Masoretic Text and the Septuagint. It's quite possible that most well-read Jews of the first century were used to hearing scripture quoted from both text types. The existence of two text types doesn't seem to have bothered them at all. Another very important point that the vast majority of the time the meaning is exactly the same between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. The wording might be slightly different, but the meaning is the same. In short, it's a win-win situation for both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Finally, most of the time Jesus quotes don't match either the Septuagint or the Masoretic Text word for word. This is significant for those who think Jesus is talking about the text when he says neither a jot or tittle would pass from the law before it was fulfilled. Almost without exception there is far more than a jot or tittle difference between Jesus' quotes and the text of the Masoretic, or the Septuagint for that matter. So, what about the apostles? So, Jesus quoted from the Septuagint most of the time when he quoted scriptures, but not always. So what about the apostles? Jesus had told them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Now, if a large number of the Jews in Palestine spoke Greek, What would be the situation when his apostles and disciples took the gospel message to the entire Mediterranean world? Obviously, they would have had to use the Septuagint, the only Greek Old Testament in existence. Again, as I said earlier, you can believe that God was not behind the Septuagint you can believe it was a man-made product and the apostles ended up using it because they had no other choice or you can choose to believe that God was behind the Septuagint and that it was created Expressly for the spreading of the gospel to the Gentile world and all around the Mediterranean, where both Jews and Gentiles spoke Greek as their main language.
1: If you
0: reject this and believe that it was a man made product, then you're saying that God made no scriptures for the Gentile world. And so the church was planted with a corrupted Bible. That to me is an unthinkable conclusion. The early 1980s, two evangelical scholars, G. Archer and G.C. Sheerishino, compared all of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament with both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. In 1983, they wrote up their findings in a book entitled, Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, a complete survey. Now, these men were not liberals. Their book was published by Moody Press. Out of 340 quotations from the Old Testament, 307 are from the Septuagint. are only 33 quotations that are clearly from the Masoretic text rather than the Septuagint. Many of those quotations are found in Matthew. This is not surprising for the early Christians state that Matthew originally wrote his Gospel in the dialect of the Hebrews. Now, whether that means Aramaic or Hebrew, It's not clear. They say that he later translated his own work into Greek. So it's not surprising that he doesn't follow the Septuagint as much as most of the other New Testament writers. There was no Aramaic version of the Septuagint in his day. I should also mention that the study done by Archer... And Cherushi was no, well, sorry, it was a bit more in-depth than mine. I compared the readings between the KJV New Testament, the Brenton Septuagint, and the KJV Old Testament. They compared the Greek of the New Testament with the various Greek texts of the Septuagint. They then compared this with the Hebrew of the Masoretic text. What you often find when you compare the Greek text is that the New Testament writers are quoting verbatim from the Greek text of the Septuagint. Some of this is lost when you're comparing the English as I did. Independently of Archer and Shureshi, other scholars have come to the same conclusion. It is written up in many places, and I'll read some of the examples to. International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, after describing the use of the Septuagint in the Jewish writings of Philo and Josephus, then came what was probably the most momentous event for the Septuagint. It was taking over, it was taken over from the Jews by the Christian church. The Septuagint was the Bible. Or most writers of the New Testament. Not only did they take from it most of their express citations of Scripture, but their writings, in particular, the Gospels. Among them, especially, was Luke. containing numerous reminiscences of its language. Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible says it was the Bible of the Diaspora and as such became the Bible of the Church. This is evident when the quotations from the Old Testament which abound throughout the New are examined. Grammar of Septuagint Greek says, We are familiar with the constant appeal made by the writers of the New Testament to Scripture, an appeal couched in such words as it is written or as the Scripture saith. In the great majority of cases, the Scripture thus appealed. Is undoubtedly the Septuagint. Seldom, if ever, is it the Hebrew. Backgrounds of early Christianity says most of the New Testament citations of the Old Testament follow the Septuagint. The Bible of the early church was the Septuagint, except for some Jewish believers and a few scholars. The Greek Old Testament was the Septuagint translation which was used by the majority of the early church. The Septuagint was the most important literary event, perhaps the most important single development of any kind, in the Hellenistic period for the background of early Christianity. That was on page 410. Introduction to the Old Testament in Greek states It may at once be said that every part of the New Testament affords evidence of a knowledge of the Septuagint, and the great majority of the passages cited from the Old Testament are in general agreement with the Greek version, page 392. Now, one of the points I've tried to get across in the recordings that I've done recently and throughout 2021, and even um, in the end of 2020, when I first started doing episodes on the early church and the kingdom concept episodes of the remnant report the main point that I tried to get across is to never rely on secondary sources just because a bible commentary or bible encyclopedia says something doesn't mean that it's necessarily true the only reason that I've just quoted from them is to let you know that what I'm sharing with you isn't some new discovery that I have made but it's what the scholarly world already knows but they don't do anything with that knowledge they still follow man's traditions and go back to the Masoretic text not a single one of the sources that I just read from advocate that we as Christians use the Septuagint in our Bible instead of the Masoretic text. In fact, some of the sources from which I just read are quite hostile to the Septuagint, and they write very disparagingly about it. So they acknowledge that it was the Bible of the Apostles, but then they criticize it and say that we should use the Masoretic text instead. Actually, this is an area where nobody has to rely upon a secondary source. It's a fairly easy matter to go through the New Testament and examine the quotations from the Old Testament. Now, it involves a bit of time, but it's something that anyone can do assuming that they have a copy of the Septuagint. One of the things that you'll find is that in about half of the quotations, the meaning is the same in both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Both texts are witnesses of God's infallible word. If you're comparing those quotations in English, you may find you can't discern if the quotation is from the Septuagint from the Masoretic. However, as I said before, when scholars compare the New Testament Greek to the Septuagint Greek, it's quite apparent that the New Testament writer is quoting from the Septuagint. Furthermore, in nearly half of the quotations, there is either a difference in meaning between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, or there is extra language involved in one of the texts. That makes it easy, even in English, to see what text the New Testament writer is quoting from. I want to give you some examples of this. I'll read to you the quotation is found in the New Testament, then I'll tell you where that passage is found in the Old Testament. Finally, I'll read you the Old Testament passage from the Masoretic Text, as translated in the King James Version. You will easily be able to see that the New Testament writer is obviously not quoting from the Masoretic Text. However, in each of these examples, the quotation fits the Septuagint to a We'll start with Romans chapter 9, verse 27. It says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Now, the Old Testament... Text that was quoted here was from the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 22. And the King James Old Testament says, Though thy people Israel be like the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them will return. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 22 says, Who committed no sin? nor was deceit found in his mouth this is quoting from isaiah 53 verse 9 when we look in our old testament it says he had done no violence neither was there any deceit in his mouth first peter 4:18 says if the righteous scarcely be saved Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? This is quoting from Proverbs 11, chapter 31. And it says in our Old Testament, Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed on the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner. Now, I think it's fairly evident from looking at those examples back-to-back that the New Testament writers were very obviously not quoting from the Masoretic text. Now, I've shown time and again throughout this episode that Although, the Hebrew Masoretic and the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament are both the Word of God, and the message is the same regardless of which text is being used, the Greek Septuagint was the text that was used by Jesus. It was the text that was used by the apostles. And it was the text that was used in the Christian Bible. The scriptures of the Christian Old Testament were the Greek Septuagint. Now that is at least for the first 300 years of Christianity. In part two of this episode or actually part two of this study in the next episode, I'm going to show you exactly when and by who this was changed in the Christian Bible. Because we know that it had to be changed because our English translations of the Bible are not based on the Septuagint today. So, in the next episode, one of the things that we're going to look at is exactly who decided to change the text family that was used for the Christian Old Testament and also we're going to look and see the different ways that the Old Testament quotations found in the new testament will always show the the I'm trying to think the best way to put this they'll always show Jesus as the Messiah, the Old Testament prophetic texts that are found in the Old Testament, the prophecies, the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are always turned on the wording of the Greek Septuagint. And this, to me, is quite clear in why the Christians chose the Greek Septuagint as the text family they used for the Christian Old Testament. Now, friends, that is all the time that we are going to have tonight on Return of the Historic Faith. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode, the first part of the message on the study of the Greek Septuagint and the Apostles' Bible. And I also pray that you learned something from this study. I tried to bring everything that I had learned myself about the Greek Septuagint to this episode and this study as a whole. I may have put a little too much detail into Tonight's uh, first episode, the first part in this series, but I wanted to uh, make sure that I painted a clear picture of the Septuagint as the inspired Word of God. Although it, (laughs) you know, it did uh, end up taking me quite a bit longer than I. Had first wanted to go. It took quite a bit longer than I anticipated it would. We normally try to keep the episodes of Return of the Historic Fate as close to an hour as we possibly can, but tonight we went for two hours. But for turn of the historic faith. I am Pastor Jeremy Anderson saying until next time, God bless and grace and peace.